Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today as we are heading towards Christmas. We're in the middle of Advent here. And um, today we're going to be looking at Luke 3, verses 1 through 6. Um, Alan would like to add a little bit more of Zechariah's song on there, which um, he'll explain why he's going to do that. But you might want to think about this as you're getting ready. As, as you're noting, this is not very many verses, so um, it might help to have some more background. So, Alan, why don't you take us away? Thank you. Um, our gospel lesson for today again, as last week, follows the pattern in all three years of the Revised Common Lectionary. On the second Sunday of Advent, the focus is on the ministry and message of John the Baptist as interpreted by the idea of the voice crying in the wilderness from Isaiah 40. And as you mentioned, since we're dealing with the ministry of John the Baptist in Luke's gospel this year, I think it's helpful to back up and take a look at the Benedictus of John's father, Zechariah, in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79. Um, as we saw last year when we took, took a look at Mary's Magnificat, Zechariah's praise to God for fulfilling the promise of salvation is filled with resonances and allusions to the Hebrew Bible, especially the Septuagint. And again, this raises the question of composition, as we talked about with the Magnificat. Should we attribute this to Zechariah as one who was speaking by the Spirit, as Luke mm -hmm. one sixty seven introduces this? Or should we attribute it to Luke, or perhaps a combination of mm -hmm. both? Um, as I mentioned recently in another podcast, I think this part of Luke's gospel particularly shows how thoroughly familiar the author was with the um, mm -hmm. Septuagint. Mm -hmm. I've heard um, discussion about that this is really the only place we get this kind of um, gospel, this kind of song, that the beginning of this opens up in yeah, song. Yeah. And is that significant? Um, it could be, I mean, because, you know, the Psalms of, uh, in the, in the Old Testament played a significant role and much of the prophetic messages, may, many of the words of the prophets, mm -hmm. you know, were, were poetic. Poetic, right. Yeah, in structure. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I would say that that probably contributed towards <laughs> shaping this material in, in this fashion. Right. Maybe why Luke went to this, um, or, uh, this style of presentation, yes, indeed. Yes, which indeed. of course for us is really beautiful. It, mm -hmm. it gives us, it gives us wonderful material in that way in order to put it into song ourselves. Surely, so, surely. Um, that's kind of special, I think actually. And, and I think actually reminds us that God's word is more than just spoken word, yes, right? Indeed. Um, yes, indeed. That there, that indeed is something for all the senses to grasp onto. So surely. Um, so, Keep going. Tell us more. Yeah, if we if we're not gonna we're not gonna dig deeply into the Benedictus, but basically just an overview of the Benedictus shows that you know almost every verse uh, points to a major theme from the Hebrew Bible, yeah. and all of them have to do with salvation. So, for example, in verse sixty eight, God has looked favorably in the New RSV, or mm -hmm. the or the more literal translation is visited His people. And if you if you have a more literal version of the of the Bible, you find that visiting and visitation, you know, that's a mentioning of God's coming to redeem mm -hmm, his people. Mm -hmm. 
uh, God has raised up a horn of salvation is the literal um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, phrase in, in chapter 1, verse 69, uh, from the house of David. And, of course, the New RSV translates that as a mighty Savior. Mm-hmm. God has shown mercy to the ancestors and remembered his covenant in verse 72, especially the promise to Abraham in verse 73. Mm-hmm. And the end result of this deliverance is so that the people might be delivered from their enemies to serve God without fear mm-hmm. in verse 74. And I, you know, I, I have to think to myself if, that there may be an allusion to the Exodus here because that's kind of what happened, right? Um, 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 Moses made the request to Pharaoh, let us go and serve our God. Let right. us go and worship our God right. on this mountain. Oh, sure. And sure. so so there's a sense in which that, that, con- that, that um, you know, conjunction of deliverance to serve God without fear. Now, finally, in in verse seventy eight, the coming salvation is the dawn from on high, and uh, I think there is at least an allusion here to Isaiah fifty eight eight, and this dawn from on high will give light to those who sit in darkness, which is a clear allusion to mm-hmm, Isaiah nine two mm-hmm. in verse seventy nine, and so again, I think all of this shows that the author of Luke's gospel is very familiar with the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. I. I, I and, and clearly is tying in Isaiah. And Isaiah clearly was part of his listeners' um, vernacular, if you yes, will. Indeed. They would have been very familiar with this yes, language. Indeed. And we, we know that. Um, uh, we know that, that Isaiah in particular was such a major prophet. And, sure. Uh, uh, so I, th- I think this is very, very interesting. And, and when they heard that, they would have... They would have resonated with resonated. it. Resonated. Exactly, yes, exactly. Yes, indeed. Okay, so moving on, how does John fit into this picture here? So when the Benedictus does mention John, something rather unusual happens. Uh, Zechariah mentions that John will be called the prophet of the Most High and that his task will be to go before the Lord to prepare his ways in verse 76. And so here Zechariah alludes to Isaiah 40, verse 3, which Luke will later quote in full in the gospel lesson for this Mm -hmm. week as we get to it. And this is important because given the limitations of space and the cost of producing documents, an author would never repeat Mm. anything without good reason. And so apparently Luke's gospel wants to place a special emphasis on this role of John as the prophetic forerunner who will go before the Lord. Yes, I agree. I, you know, as we're talking about this, I keep thinking, you know, here we are in Advent waiting for Jesus. And, you know, I, I know all the pastors out there know we have to talk about John. And yet there is a bit of a sense of John kind of coming out of thin air because we don't mm. have the earlier narrative which right. talks about his birth. We all we have is and now we're going to dump into yeah. John. Any thoughts about that? Well, that's what happens in Mark's gospel. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's right? true. Good point. Good point. So, yeah, um it's I mean, John has kind of a prologue, mm-hmm. but he doesn't really have any infancy narratives. It's Matthew and Luke are the ones who have the infancy narratives. Right. And, you know, we've, we've seen the Magnificat, we've seen the Benedictus, a great deal of the, of the, of the infancy narratives in Luke seem to be composed by Luke to convey theological themes right. that he's trying to get right. across with his gospel. Right. So I guess my question is, why is the, um, why, why does the Revised Common Lecture 
dump us here. I think just because the idea is that John is the one who is preparing the way for so, Jesus to so, come. And we're in Advent and we yeah. are indeed ourselves and preparing. Even okay, though so Christmas th- is his birth, you know, to some extent, and, and John was preparing for Jesus' public ministry. Right. They're sort of, I think in the, in the, in the lectionary, the way the lectionary handles Advent, they're sort of melded in together, yeah. you know, okay. that Jesus' birth okay. and his beginning of his public ministry right, are right. kind of melded into this idea preparing the way for the lord okay okay i think that's fair um it just it was one of those as i as we were talking about it i'm not sure we dealt with right why are we starting with right. dawn here no, again that's, and i think that's a good question i think a lot of folks in our church is probably think the same thing it's right like, well who's this yeah, <laughs> right yeah. especially non-church folks right. okay so we're moving into a, a little bit um um how how does this this zechariah's benedictus how does it um specifically craft John's role. Yeah, and, and I think this is another interesting move um, in, that Luke makes, uh, and that is that in, in Zechariah's Benedictus, Luke provides an interpretation of John's role. Specifically, Luke says, he will give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. Again, verse 77, he will give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of, her sin, of their sins. I hope we're catching the theme of salvation right. here because yeah. You know, the deliverance, the redemption that was talked about before, you know, now John is the one who's going to come and prepare for, go before the Lord, and and he's going to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. Now, this is hinted at in the other gospels with their mention of John's baptism for the forgiveness of sins, but nowhere in the gospel tradition is John's role Mm, interpreted quite in this way. And I think this has to do with Luke's whole take on the gospel story. Um, I mean, we saw last week when we looked at Luke's version of the the coming of the son of man discourse, Mm -hmm. you know, Luke had only Luke has that verse that says, when you see these things, you know, lift up your heads because your redemption is at hand. Right. Right. This seems to be um, a, a constant theme in in Luke's gospel. Interesting, and I, I'm hearing I'm hearing some things. And of course, I've been working on on my section too. I see salvation of his people, and I see this collective here. Um, and I think most of us as modern day people tend to think about salvation as individuals, mm-hmm. and yet I'm really seeing the collective oh, yeah. here. Oh yeah. Well, and I, and one of the things we talked about last year when we looked at the Magnificat is the people in Luke's gospel are the laos. Right. And in Luke and Acts, wherever that word occurs, it is a reference to the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. So, so, and you can see this through from the references to the house of David and the covenant with Abraham and these kinds of things. There's definitely a very Hebrew Bible, Jewish people kind of flavor to to the Benedictus, just as we saw in the Magnificat. And as we saw when we looked at... Um, um, the, the the passage about um, um, Anna and right. um, Simeon, right, right. and so um, I think that's the starting point. The starting point is this concept of a people of God, and the people of God are the Jewish people. But in 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 Luke's gospel, we're going to see that that people is going to be expanded to include all people. Mm-hmm. And all people are going to be yeah, in this community. Ex- yeah, exactly. Community. Exactly. But I think you're right. I mean, it's not, the salvation is not individual at right. all. The salvation is for a people, a community. A, exactly. And I, I think that's, 
I think that's going to be one of our keys for talking later, mm-hmm. actually, that's to think about. So all this in mind and all this background and all this kind of building up excitement that's done here, and then we get to the gospel lesson for yes, this Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. This brings us to the gospel lesson. All four gospels describe the ministry of John in mm-hmm. similar terms, even to the point of citing Isaiah yes, 40, verse 3. They mm-hmm. all four do that. And although Mark and John present this information really kind of at the outset of their gospels, because you know, Matthew and Luke, you know, have infancy narratives. Right. And so their accounts of John the Baptist come later, but they still serve they, as kind of an introduction yeah, to Jesus' they do. ministry. They and that's do. what's going on here is, is, right. is that Luke is, is, is bringing up, just like as in the other Gospels, Luke is bringing up John as an introduction to Jesus' public ministry. So one of the things you point out is that Luke will include information, though, I mean, while they all introduce it, that's that's different, that's yes, unique indeed. to Luke. Yeah. He includes a lot of information here that's not found anywhere else uh, by introducing John's ministry, by dating it according to the reigns of kings and the tenure of the high priest. You know how happy that makes me, right, the historian? <laughs> of course. I just course. love that. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> right? Right? And, and, and to me, as a Bible guy, you know, I love it because it's reminiscent as well of the Hebrew Bible because mm-hmm. this is the pattern in several of the prophetic books. Yeah. You know, they date certain elements of a prophet's ministry and message during the reign of the kings of Judah and right. Israel. And so, you know, again, Luke is following a biblical pattern here. Right. I, I'm going to push that. That's really how ancient societies all dated yes, everything indeed. the yes, king indeed. dates that yes, is how indeed. you you had to know what the king was and it's in what year of the reign so it's yeah. kind of the, well, how yeah, they, did they it. didn't have the the calendar like we had exactly. so they dated it by reigns yeah. of kings or by great by by events or yeah. things like that right it's really cool that here it is it's it, it, there's authentication about that in, in my brain <laughs> well and you see this not only in luke but throughout acts yeah, yeah it does it, i love it so much as well. yes yeah <laughs> So Luke introduces John's ministry as taking place in the 15th year of the reign of the emperor Tiberius when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias was ruler of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. There's <sighs> Take so much cool information there. Oh, there, yes. there is. There is. And you know, unfortunately, we don't really know what to make of all these dates. And so... I think this this is a rather unusual introduction, really, and it plays, I think, a couple of roles. At the most obvious level, it dates the beginning of John's ministry to around 29 to 20, 28 to 29 A.D. Unfortunately, we can't pin down the date more specifically because we don't really know the actual time frame of the rulers mentioned, particularly Tiberius. There's some uncertainty about when the 15th year of his reign would be, whether it would be 28 A.D. or 29 A.D., right? Right, right. Now, Pontius Pilate reigned during this time and after, and he was infamous in the Jewish literature of his time for his brutal and corrupt administration of Judea. The Herod who's mentioned Mm -hmm. is Herod Antipas, who will later have John the Baptist executed, right? Right, right. And Philip is Herod Philip, who ruled primarily Gentile territory, and his primary role in the narrative of Luke and Acts comes in with the fact that Herod Antipas had married Philip's wife. Right, exactly. And because of that, John criticized Antipas, and therefore John was arrested and ultimately executed. Little to nothing is known of Lysanias. Uh, So 
I mean, basically, the reign of the Emperor Tiberius gives us the basic right. time frame of right. 28 to 29 AD. Exactly. But I think more importantly, all of these people sort of um, played the role of a villain. And we'll come back I, to that. Yeah, and I, I, I like that. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. Now, the fact that Luke mentions that John began his ministry during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas may seem confusing at first because we think, wait, how can there be two high priests? Isn't there only one high priest at a time? And my, my reformers get a little caught up with that, trying to explain it. So I right? think Alan has a good explanation. Yeah. So. Uh, the, the reality is, is that Annas was high priest from 6 to 15 AD. And he was succeeded by his son Caiaphas, who was high priest from 18 to 36 mm -hmm. or 37 AD. But if we do a close reading of the Gospels and Acts, we find that Annas was continuing to exercise his influence after his formal term in office. So he was sort of the power behind his sons. And actually, Caiaphas was just the first of Annas's sons to hold the high priesthood. Several of his sons continued to hold the high priesthood so that the family of Annas controlled the, the high priesthood for several decades. So, um, again, taken together, Pilate, Herod Antipas, Annas, and Caiaphas, they all play the role of villains yeah. in Luke and Acts. Yeah. And if the historical sources we have are to be trusted, they deserved that characterization. Well, you know, what's interesting is, as you're pointing it out in this way and, and just thinking about growing up in the, in the church, they have always been villains in my mind. Mm -hmm. So clearly that has not only been um, introduced by Luke this way, but it has become uh, kind of um, 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 emblazoned Surely. in our minds that this, these are bad guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think when you just read it like this, you just kind of read it over, you don't necessarily catch the fact that there's kind of an ominous tone here, you know. Right. I mean, besides locating John's ministry in the historical timeline, this way of introducing John's ministry calls to mind the social and political setting mm -hmm. in which John and later Jesus would carry out his ministry, and it foreshadows the threat that these powerful people would pose to John and ultimately to Jesus. Mm-hmm. I, this is I, the first time I've thought about it this way, but this is very interesting. Well, and the thing we also we also ought to remember is that as we're reading this, you know, again, the Revised Common Lectionary does us a disservice a little bit by taking it piecemeal. But if we were to have to have heard or read the gospel straight through, we would have resonating in our mind, you know, Mary's Magnificat, Magnificat right. where the powerful people are being thrown down and the and the lowly people are being exalted. Yeah, ex exactly. So it's it's really it's really carefully crafted. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, and here is John. And how is John portrayed? Yeah, so Luke tells us that in that situation of of really kind of a tense and and a bit of a dangerous political and social situation, the word of God came to John son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. That's verse 2. And so basically this depicts John as a prophet like those in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and basically, it was virtually a formula mm -hmm. to say that the word of God or the word of the Lord came to one of the prophets as a way of introducing the message that the prophet delivered from God. Mm -hmm. Several of the prophetic books, you can find that phrase all over, right. you know, the, introducing, and the word of the Lord came to the prophet and he said, you know, and, and it, it introduces a whole section of that, of that, of that prophetic book. 
That it took place in the wilderness also echoes the experiences of prophets in the Hebrew Bible, most notably Elijah. Yes. And, you know, we're going to find that later uh, John will be compared with Elijah. Mm -hmm. And I think that 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 notion of, of the word of the Lord coming to John in the wilderness and John being somebody in the wilderness and being called by God in the wilderness mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. Is, is also trying to, to draw a parallel with Elijah. You know, the, the wilderness too, there, there's actually quite a bit of studies about the wilderness it, in our modern age when, you know, we can have LIDAR detection and we can really see into the wilderness and it's not so mysterious. Um, but there's a lot of discussion back then that the wilderness is really unknown and it is a scary place for people. So this is a reminder of kind of maybe God's providence, if you will, in the, in the wilderness, that this space that people would have been really afraid to be in, um, uh, dangerous, bad people. Oh, this, he comes out of the wilderness. Wait, God has providence for the wilderness. So I think this is a really um, important little piece that is in it is. here. Well, and you mm-hmm. see it, I mean, with, with the story of Elijah. Elijah goes into the wilderness, you know, to meet God. And, and in the wilderness, the, the angel comes yeah. and, and feeds him, you know, and, and then he finally gets to the mountain of God and, and hears the word of the Lord. And so it's, it's, it's sort of like you do yeah. have that kind of you do have that kind of sort of cultural notion about the wilderness as right. being a place that's dangerous yeah. or a place where evil dwells. Evil dwells. But, but in the Bible, you know, it's, the Bible won't have any of that. Exactly. Well, and it's, it's really. <laughs> the wilderness is part of God's creation as well. And it takes me off a little bit. But when you think about. And we'll talk more in my section about this kind of dualistic world that comes out. This this really counters mm-hmm. that. This mm-hmm. this reminds us of 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 God, uh, of God's sovereignty, God over all, instead Absolutely. of that that dualist set. There's no place. Sense. There's no place you can go where God is absent. Exactly. Exactly. So really, really nuanced, cool stuff. Yeah. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask about this though was some of the language that we have. You know, like eating locusts and honey. That's not in Luke. No. No. That's right. Um, now. Any thoughts about that? Just, uh, you know, I think um, you find that in Mark's gospel, and I think that um, you know that was just again that was another way of characterizing him as as this prophetic type mm-hmm. figure. You know, um, um, you know that he wasn't he wasn't somebody who was wearing soft robes and living in a palace. He was living in the wilderness. You know, eating. You know, dressed in camel's hair. You know, with a leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey. Mm-hmm. You know, this was this was this was not somebody who came from um, the rich or the wealthy people. He was somebody that was really kind of unlikely and and called by God to Mm -hmm. do this. Okay. Okay. Um, So moving on, um, tell us more about how Luke describes John's ministry. Yeah. So Luke describes John's ministry basically in a way that's common to the other synoptic gospels. Luke says it, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And although Matthew and Mark specify John's audience as coming from Jerusalem and Judea, I would just say that Luke is summarizing here when he says he went into all the region Mm -hmm. around the Jordan. Um, But I think the point here is the fact that all three synoptic gospels uh, emphasize that John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That seems to be the content of the word of God that came to John, was Mm -hmm. to proclaim this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, in next week's lesson from the Gospel of Luke, we'll see that 
what the content of that proclamation is, which is basically concerned with practicing true justice and mercy as the means of living in the way of peace that Zechariah had talked about mm-hmm. in his Benedictus in verse 79 mm-hmm. of chapter 1. Um, but for now, all we're told is that John called the people to repent and to be baptized as a sign of repentance. Mm-hmm. And so he clearly proclaimed basically God's offer of the forgiveness of sins to those who would repent. And again, this seems to be the content of the word of the Lord that comes to John. To, to John. He goes out and proclaims this message of repenting mm-hmm. and being baptized and having their sins forgiven. So is, is this, this isn't unique to, to Luke, though, necessarily, in that is this somehow reflected no. in Isaiah before that? Not really. It's not, it's not reflected in Isaiah, it's, but it's, it's in all the synoptic gospels. And, and okay. I would say this is probably likely that was part of the gospel tradition because that seems to yeah, be what John sure. did. Okay. He went, okay. he, he, you know, John baptized and, and that was not completely unusual in right. the Jewish setting of that day. Right. It was fairly unusual. The only time that Jewish uh, people tended to practice baptism was when a Gentile person converted to Judaism. Right. They were baptized. Uh, we've mentioned before that the folks at Qumran practice daily ritual baptisms mm-hmm. as a way of washing away mm-hmm. uncleanness. But um, otherwise, this would have been kind of unusual mm-hmm. that John was baptizing people and calling them to repent of their sins um, uh, in order to be forgiven. So I think, you know, as you're talking about this, thinking about baptism, so this baptism is a concept that they are at least aware of and familiar I guess to some extent, right? I mean, if it, yeah, they had done I it before. Yeah, I think they would have been they would have been aware of the concept of baptism, but like I said, it so, wouldn't have been commonly practiced. But in John Judaism. didn't make it up. Is, no, is something no, like that. No. I think that's interesting. All yeah. right, so moving on, uh, what comes next? So Luke tells us then that all of this took place in accordance with what was written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah which is his way, basically, of introducing the quotation from Isaiah 40. And as I said before, all the Gospels cite Isaiah 40, verse 3, or at least part of it, in support of John's ministry. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare Mm -hmm. the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the association with John's ministry of baptism and calling the people to repentance implies that this is the preparation for the Lord that the prophet Isaiah spoke of. Now, you know, we've seen before, you know, Isaiah 40 probably was talking about the return from exile. Yes, yes. Uh, so, 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 you know, the, the preparing the way was basically making the way for the people to return from Babylon to, to Judea. Um, uh, so that was the original reference. But in, in the Gospels, um, the Gospel writers all associate this with John's ministry of baptism and calling people to repentance. And again, the implication is that this is sort of another layer of, of mm-hmm. meaning and another layer of fulfillment mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. Uh, to what, the, what that preparation for the Lord yeah. would be, you know, that, that, that Isaiah was speaking of. So <laughs> is it a... Do you think this is part of how the text is designed, or do you think it's a like a, a reapplication of a text that it has yeah. nothing to do? It was not a prediction. Uh, you know, the the predictive element in Isaiah forty originally related to the return from exile. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the second Isaiah was addressed to the people in exile. 
their exile was coming to an end and they were going to return to their own land. And so, you know, in, as a way of comforting them, Isaiah's message to them was, your sins have been forgiven. You know, God is going to prepare the way for you. I mean, the, the, right. tre- the, the trek from Babylon back to Judea would not have been an easy one. Right. And there probably would have been some fear and anxiety on the part of the people about making that trek. But so this language of, 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 of making, preparing the way and preparing the road, you know, is, is basically the language that is meant to reassure the people that God would lead them from exile back to their homeland. So I think a lot of our, I think a lot of our folks would read that as a, as a prepar- as a, as, as a, a prediction. prediction. Yes. And I, and yet, I'm as I, if I'm understanding it right, it's 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 less about a prediction, something that that, but more of just a layer of how God works in the world, and yeah. so it's, it's more kind of, of an that, application, an application. Yeah, and um, I think I think this has to do with the way that the gospel writers quote um, quote these Old Testament passages uh, as being fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. Um, I think someone like Luke would have known about the original setting of Isaiah 40. And, and so sure. this, was, this was simply another application. And again, another sense of another, another meaning, you know, that they saw in John the Baptist, another fulfillment to the, the words of the prophet Isaiah, mm. um, besides the original setting that, that Isaiah foresaw. Got it. Got it. All right, so let's let's move on. We're heading towards the end now. Yeah, and it's interesting that only Luke continues the quotation from Isaiah mm. forty verses four and five. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. And again, in the original setting of of the exiles returning, you right. can see that how that would sense. be an assurance uh-huh. to them, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Now, this is not a word-for-word quotation of the Septuagint, but it does follow the Septuagint Mm. very closely. And then we go to the final quotation, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is only found in the Septuagint version. The Mm. Hebrew Masoretic text reads, then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Hmm. So again, I think this is that one of the many. Yeah, piece, it's that salvation piece, and it's also one of the many places where the author of Luke and Acts demonstrates a knowledge of the Septuagint. You know, as I smile and think about this, and I wonder why why it's very close and not word for word, and I wonder if it's just because he did it out of memory. Did he could just, be. Did he just could, write down what's in his mind? It could be. You know, we have evidence of different versions of the text of the Hebrew Bible, either in Hebrew or in Greek. And and when you look at the quotations from the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament, you know, there's, there's enough of them that you can see. Mm-hmm. There's some variety there. Okay. And so it seems to indicate that there would have been um, some some maybe variation even in the even in the mm-hmm. even in the written texts mm-hmm. of the Septuagint or the Hebrew Hebrew Bible, um, Qum, the Qumran scrolls have confirmed this. Although by and large the Qumran scrolls have shown the stability of the tradition of the Hebrew mm-hmm. Bible. That uh, you know the Qumran scrolls before the Qumran scrolls were, were discovered, the earliest. Hebrew manuscript we had was dated to a thousand years after Christ. Yeah, wow. And so the the Qumran scrolls come from about the first century BC or maybe a little earlier. And the text of the Hebrew Bible was essentially, you know, ninety to ninety-five percent or more, right. you know, the same. And so you see, you see a basic stability of the Hebrew text, but there were some variations. Right. And right. and so either either there was some variation in the text 
or they're recording from memory. Probably a combination of both. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And I, an aside, processing. Uh, didn't we discover those Kumon texts in like the 40s? Yes. So think about that. Late oh, 40s. Oh, man. Yeah, late that 40s. That is crazy to that think something? about. That is right. Right. fascinating yeah. all right now again this is uh, this is one of the places also where where luke emphasizes the theme of salvation and you know i think while the septuagint differs verbally from the masoretic text the septuagint reads all flesh shall see the salvation of god the masoretic text says the glory of the lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together i think the idea is the same god's salvation will be revealed mm-hmm. and all people will see it and right. so, you know, I, I, I don't see there to be any great contradiction here. You know, it's, it's basically Luke is, is, is doing the same thing that John does for his audience. You know, he's, he's, he's taking the language of the Hebrew Bible and, and using it in a way that, is, that makes sense for his community. Mm. Yes, and I think it makes sense to us who come later, mm-hmm. too. You yes. know what I mean? Yes. Um, because that, because that, it's clear that the emphasis is on salvation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We might not pick that up from the glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. Okay. Although I think that was the uh, that was the essence of what what that that passage meant. You know that God is going to deliver His people. Right. Well, okay. So, what? Any any final thoughts for us, Alan? Yeah. So, I think by including the full quotation of Isaiah forty three through five, and particularly with that last phrase, "All flesh shall see the salvation of God," this passage picks up themes that have already been established in Luke's infancy narrative, especially in the Benedictus of Zechariah. And while John's ministry is framed primarily in terms of repentance and forgiveness of sins in the other Gospels, in Luke he becomes a harbinger of salvation, mm-hmm. of God's salvation. So that's that's kind of his role. He's not only he's not only preparing the way for Jesus, he's also the harbinger of God's salvation, which all people mm-hmm. will see. And so in this respect, of course, Luke sets the stage for the beginning of Jesus' ministry as the fulfillment of that salvation, but it also contributes to the theme of the coming of the Lord to bring salvation for all people, which is going to be a theme, I think, that's mm-hmm. going to run through Luke and Acts. Well, and again, we're going back to that corporate sense of Absolutely. all people again that we um, are kind of are kind of dealing with yeah god's god's concern with salvation is not for individuals yeah. it is for a people people mm-hmm. yeah Very. and and really there are plenty of places in the hebrew bible and in the new testament where it talks about all people mm-hmm. very interesting and that's kind of a teaser for maybe some things that, uh, that we'll pick up from the reformers okay thanks thanks Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy talk to us about how the Reformers dealt with this passage. So take it away, Christy. Sure. So this uh, this passage had three themes as I saw it. Um, one was baptism, one was repentance, and one was history. Now, you know, baptism becomes such a big deal during the Reformation. And um, for some, it, 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 it is about the baptism, but for others, uh, more focus is actually on repentance. Um, but nonetheless, because they're trying to define what baptism is, and I, you know, I kind of was asking some of those questions earlier, um, what does this mean? And, and they, so this is part of the discussion there. Um, and our Anabaptists said, look, this is one of the number one places where we have believers' baptism because John says you have to come and repent, and then you'll be baptized um, by water. And um, 
it became one of the big, it, it was the example. And of course, then they went on to push, well, children can't believe and therefore you can't baptize them. So it really became an anti children's baptism thing and a believer's baptism and this mm. is one that proof text use now are that's where the anabaptists were but our our mainline reformers while they will disagree with that won't particularly use this text as one to you know refute it in itself good for them because yeah. i don't think this has to do with christian baptism at all exactly <laughs> exactly calvin calvin um says look this this is a baptism by water but this is only um this is only a, a human action, um, and it's really the Holy Spirit, the baptism of Christ, that mm-hmm. has the Holy Spirit coming down. Um, and so it's where he emphasizes the Spirit, and he Well, writes, and you know, you, you get that. I, I can see where he would make that distinction, because in Acts chapter 19, Paul encounters some disciples who had only encountered the right. baptism of John. Exactly. And they didn't know of the Spirit, and so... Right. Paul baptizes them, and then the Spirit comes upon them. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense that he would make that distinction. Exactly. And so Calvin writes, "There there are no true teachers except those God has anointed with an office. In other words... Um, that this is all coming through God. God is central. God's um, so John's work is a is a baptizer. It's part of God's work, but it's not the final piece. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So it's, well, it's it's the preparation. It's the preparation exactly. Yeah. Um, again, kind of a minor piece, but it's here. Mm-hmm. So I want to move on to the idea of repentance as being a little bit more the focus of most of them. Um, uh, Martin Bootser, for example, um, um, really talks about this the need of repentance there. And, this, and, and I think what I got from Bootser's writing was this sense of the communal nature. And I kind of was hinting at that earlier of, of baptism. Um, and that this is a baptism that um, may be conferred on individuals, but it's really about the... Um, the the broader community. Surely. And, and John and, is calling the whole people to God, Exactly, exactly. No. Um, and in Bootser's writing, I would argue that there's even a sense of universal salvation because you're talking about all of God's people. But this repentance by water, that really it's coming of Jesus um, and, and the baptism by the Spirit that indeed provides that next step. It's the promise of God of Christ's grace to come, if you will. And that that is enough for all of humanity. So mm. this this whole this whole kind of image of a universal salvation, I think, is there. And I don't know that Butcher would say that for sure, but I saw those instances there. Um, I like that. I, you know, and that reminds me of Bart's notion that, you know, it, it's all about God's grace. And yeah. it's about the, uh, right. the uh, shall we say, the effectiveness, the efficacy, you know, the power of God's grace. Mm-hmm. And and that, you know, Bart can say that there are people who are, have not yet um, pr- come to faith in Christ, but, but they don't know that they've already been chosen in Christ, but they have been. But they have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, this is an interesting space. And what it reminds me of is the kind of when we move to Calvin is really the emphasis on sovereignty of God mm-hmm. and God's power and God's ability to redeem all of creation. I mean, this is a huge, huge step. And what you see here is this, this slow shifting from um, human acts of repentance 
towards God's action. Yeah, I like um, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, you know, my favorite Reformed theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, right. would say it this way, you know, how can we with our, I'm paraphrasing, how can mm-hmm. we with our limited human will thwart God's purpose? Exactly. Exactly. If God's purpose is to redeem all creation and all humankind, how can we, with our limited will, you know, our, our mortal and human will, thwart that exactly. purpose of God? Exactly. And, of course, so I also saw some pieces by Erasmus. And, and you remember that Erasmus, well, we include him with the reformers because he's such an important humanist thinker and such an important um, person to point out a lot of the problems with the church remains Roman Catholic. And his ideas do not completely shift and you see in him this kind of you have to do it you it's your repentance individual mm-hmm. and you see that you see that kind of lack of 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 hope there look you don't repent you haven't done enough you won't be saved wow. all fits into what he is saying and so what you're getting is kind of these the the emergence of what's going to become um um, reformation theology and this kind of love of God um, for humanity. You know this 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 Jesus that died for our sin. We get to see this theology of the cross of Luther, and we get to see the sovereignty of God of Calvin. Both of these, though, um, juxtaposed against this kind of world where it's between God and we've talked about sort of God and Satan and s- salvation and and falling into hell and you get this kind of dualism there and it's really interesting how this passage can have all of this Mm. all of this built in it but i want to point out that it's within this in this context that there's such a there's such a a joy kind of built into the theology of the reformation Mm. that we forget about today because uh we have because we're trying to come at it being postmodernists right. ourselves and and from our perspective from, it sounds rather rigid and formal you know <laughs> right interesting um someone passed in my um in my church um having grown up roman catholic um become presbyterian and he loved the church and one of the things that he loved was the assurance of pardon mm. for him that was so huge yeah and i love how that's all done together, right? Mm-hmm. We have this built in. We do this communal, um, this communal confession, right. and then we this, and then we're, the assurance of pardon is all together. And it's uh, this is really kind of we kind of overlook how really important this is in our in our tradition. Yeah, that's right. that's good. Yeah, so I think the other piece of this that really struck me as interesting is this kind of history, and I. I not in the terms of like, as I uh, asking Alan earlier, of a prediction in Isaiah of what's going to happen, but rather the kind of the overarching architect of God over the world as a whole, and that this has is part of kind of God's plan for humanity. And I, they really kind of started to push that out, um, and and this might push it further, but I th- I think there's this idea that Christianity has been there since the beginning, that this was part of that initial mm. kind of plan of the world. Um, and um, there had been apparently an idea, Christianity started with Tiberius Caesar, so there was a period, there was this period before and after, but saying that Christianity, that Christ had been in and through God's plan from the beginning. Well, and I think, you know, 
theologically speaking, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, historically speaking, obviously Christianity arose exactly. in response to Jesus' life and death exactly. and resurrection. But, but theology, theologically speaking, Paul says, you know, God planned this before the creation of the exactly. world. Exactly. <laughs> and that makes sense with a, a sovereign God and a concept of um, yeah. uh, providence, right? Yeah. And it's certainly some of the th- like, concepts I worked with. Um, so anyway, uh, Bootser, though, Boots goes back to the idea of the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. So, so that, Isaiah is a prediction. And, a prediction and of again. John the Baptist, so yeah. you're getting you're getting that um, in and out. Now Calvin would not say that, but that's so you're, you're seeing the you're seeing these kind of similar discussions, but yet we're starting to divide out about what what these really means. Because Calvin would say, no, 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 you can't you can't read it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but good for him. <laughs> but I will, I will give Bootser and Calvin still credit for this broad idea of this, if you will, drama of, of human, human life. And what I liked about it, it in some way, shape, or form, it draws us into it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then, again, going back to Erasmus again, as I kind of mentioned earlier, a whole different space. Mm. It's it's not about that. It's about the dualistic world I talked about mm. before. Not about God's evil. not about God's kind of you know, I talked about this as the wilderness. That God has has providence over all the world, then good and evil you can see coming mm. out there and that God I think I think in the theology ultimately God does win, but there's definitely a battle between good and evil. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, as we have talked about before, you know, that whole that that whole theology really came to its full development in the Middle Ages. And it's amazing how in how deeply ingrained it became in the Christian imagination and still is. It still is. It still is. And I think there's so many reasons. And it also just it's an easy way to look at the world. There's good and there's bad. Well, it's, it makes sense out of the fact that 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 the reality of this world does not live up to the ideal of God's kingdom. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But and and to be fair to Erasmus, again, he's he's one of our main early early thinkers. He he his ideas. He was the guide for our early uh, uh, Martin Luther and Zwingli and all these people to be in conversation with because he was one of the first ones to start to push. Um, the ideas of human uh, humanism into what we understood about the church. Sure. Well, the, he was the guy who put together the first Greek New Testament. Exactly. You know, about the time that that Luther was doing his ninety five theses and Calvin was writing his Institutes. Exactly. <laughs> and so he's a really important figure. I don't want us to not like Erasmus. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, he he found many of the the problems going on in the church. He just didn't ever actually actually step into the 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 camp of an actual reformer mm-hmm. and so i i don't want to be hard on him because luther could have said the same thing right, right? very easily i was thinking here. that as you were talking it sounded exactly. a lot exactly like and i didn't actually look specifically at luther but this is very much how luther surely and so you're seeing these kinds of i like it because you're starting to see these theological questionings and yet it leaves all these interesting loose ends and, and things. Yeah. Um, but one of the things, um, you know, if we think about this historically, <laughs> and this is some of the things I was thinking about, you can, you can definitely see eras of what I can consider to be intellectual history in there. So this idea to evil versus good to an era of human confidence in God's grace mm. um, and uh, the potential of human community. And mm. I really like that. But this is going to evolve from that kind of confidence in hu- what humanity and what right. we could do as human beings into this 
kind of extreme individualism that we see today right. in this kind of postmodern world. Well, and you have a breakdown of confidence generally in humanity and you have exactly. a breakdown of confidence in, in, in progress and you have... Exactly. You have, a breakdown so of you, progress, right? And we start to see that in the 20th century and now yeah. into today. Yeah. And so now, you know, now you have lack of that and it really becomes about me. Um, and so it, it explains why people... I didn't sin when I'm reading that you know that prayer of confession. That doesn't appeal to me. Right, right. Not really understanding um, the the how we work together in community and mm -hmm. how how we have an It's not an individual alone that's saved. It doesn't even make sense ultimately when you think about that. It's, the community has to work together. Absolutely. You know. Um, I just yeah. finished a study of the Lord's Prayer in my congregation mm -hmm. and, and used Will Williman and Stanley Hauerwas's book, Lord Teach Us. And um, they talked about at the end that, you know, we have to pray together because that keeps us honest. Yeah. Because we're accountable to one another when we pray together. And yeah. I like that because that, you know, that whole act of, of, of congregational confession, you know, we're, we're praying the prayer of confession together. We're praying the Lord's Prayer together. You know, we're doing these things together and it keeps us honest. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. No, I, yeah, I think that's really interesting and really important. What I am excited about, and I put this out here as my kind of final thought is, I wonder as we have been isolated from each other with the post pandemic. Now we're not there yet, but I wonder if we are going to start to learn to rely on each other again. And I, I uh, hope so. <laughs> people are really hungry. I think for community. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're there yet. I, th I think we're going to go through a lot more pain before we get yeah. there. But um, my hope is that we begin to realize that we need each other. Yes, indeed. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We're back. And as we are reflecting on this passage, as we look at both, you know, the, the exegesis and then as we look at uh, kind of our re reformers response, you know, I think the interesting piece about Luke is this emphasis on salvation that he brings there, which is a really, uh, it's not, it wasn't obvious to me when I read it, I have to be honest. And so when I'm thinking about, you know, Advent and thinking about, really why this is so important this this passage in luke i think it's a salvation piece so Surely. let's talk about that alan why don't you yeah. take it away well and you know i always say i will say this is where having some kind of tool to compare the synoptic gospel all four gospels mm -hmm. to compare them with each other can be helpful now I don't mean a harmony of the Gospels, because harmonies, <laughs> no. harmonies tend to harmonize. Well, but, yeah. But some sort of tool to compare, you know, what each one says, because that's where you see these things stand out, you know, that Luke has this emphasis on all flesh will see the salvation mm -hmm. of our God, mm -hmm. you know, and he only he says that. And, and so just as a, as, a, as a statement, just as a kind of a, a, a um, I guess, a tip, you know, if you're, if you're looking for these things in your own personal study, you know, find a right. way to, to compare the, the text of, of, you know, the actual yeah. text of the Gospels, because I've that's got, where those things come out. I've got one of those parallel text yeah. things um, there, although just... I'm not sure I would have caught it anyway. Sometimes the obvious isn't obvious right. in my world, but... But after talking about it, it has, sure, right? I mean, surely. that's, you know, 
the the that's part of what we're trying to trying to do yes, is indeed. offer you kind of an online um, um, reference that you can listen to instead yeah. of instead of read. But um, yeah, so emphasizing this idea of salvation, um, but it, I think it I think it lends itself to who's and how is one saved or who's being saved here yeah, and. Yeah. Well, and, and this is one of the things, you know, the more we have our discussions and the more I learn about the Reformers from you, the, the, the more happy I am that I'm in the Reformed tradition, and particularly the Presbyterian Church, because I love, you know, th- this notion that Calvin has of, of God's sovereign purpose that, that, you know, is from the beginning to the end, and it's the same throughout. It doesn't change. And that purpose is for, it's a grace. It's a purpose of grace. It's a purpose for salvation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see it, I mean, it begins with the call of Abraham, you know. Um, I will bless you, and and in, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, mm-hmm. you know. And, and a lot of folks who focus on a more individualistic uh, version of salvation will say, well, yeah, that means that people who come from all types of, you know, fam- all types of ethnic groups throughout the world will get saved, but it doesn't mean that all the families of the earth will get saved. That's not the way the Hebrew Bible uses the language, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. All flesh right. is the language of, of, of right. Isaiah 40. Right. That, there, there's, no, there's nobody gets left out of all flesh, right? right it's, that's everybody. Right. Well, and when you talk about, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that when you come to the world, kind of looking at it as all flesh, we say it kind of takes away your ability to be the judge. Like, mm-hmm. ooh, he's not saved. I don't really need to pay attention to him. Instead, it says, my gosh, this is my brother or my sister in Christ. Absolutely. Um, and even if they're not yet believers, you're looking at them more with these eyes of humanity as opposed to, oh, well, that guy, but I'm not going to pay attention to that guy over there. And um, well, Jesus put it, you know, that the, that, that the weightier matters of the law are justice and mercy and faithfulness, mm-hmm, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, if, if that's what really counts, then we're going to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God. And that's going to affect the way we look at everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, and, and so you know, I think people get confused about this because, you know, you have this idea of the election or the choosing of, of the you know, the Jewish people in the Old Testament as, as sort of the starting point. And it sounds rather exclusive. And even the Jewish people took it to be rather exclusive. But throughout the Hebrew Bible, you have these emphases that make it clear in, in the call of Abraham, in the Psalms, in, in, in the prophets like Isaiah, that, you know, the, the purpose of calling Israel was not just to bless Israel, but right. that this was where right. God, this was sort of the starting point for God to bless all the families of the earth, right. all flesh. Right. We'll see, you know, the salvation of our God. Right. And, and so it's, it's like, it's like um, God claims this one people, the, the descendants of Abraham, as, as the, the, the means through whom he's going to bring his love and mercy and justice to all people and that will become then one great family of God that all belong to God. And, and that's kind of, you know, one of the things I love about Revelation is you've got some of these scenes in heaven, you know, you have these, you have these gruesome apocalyptic battle scenes, right, but you have right. these interludes in right. between that. And the interludes are, are like taking a breath and getting the view from heaven. 
And the view from heaven is beautiful. Right, right. <laughs> the view from heaven is God on the throne, and the view from heaven is ten thousands upon ten thousands. You know, a, num- a, a multitude that cannot be numbered. You know, you can you can't count the stars in the sky. You can't count the grains of sand on the on the earth. You can't count the number of people around the throne, and they're right. all praising God and yeah, and, and, yeah. and, right, and right. the Lamb that was slain. Right, right. And and so again, you just have so many different images about this this idea that salvation is for all and it's and the purpose is to create not an exclusive community but an all-embracing mm-hmm. community that that gives glory to God you know as Paul says right. every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father yeah, yeah. now so here's the here's one of the main obstacles about this is that how does that relate to people who belong to other religions? And and, right. and so, you know, as from a Christian perspective, we're saying that all people will ultimately be saved through Jesus Christ. Right. right. Um I and as a as a as a member of the human race and as somebody, you know, who wants to be culturally sensitive, I'm not going to go up to somebody who is a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Jewish person and say to them, Hey, don't worry about it because you're ultimately going to be saved by Jesus. Right. That's pretty insensitive, you right. know? Exactly. Yeah. And so I'm, that is my faith, is that all people will be ultimately saved through Christ. Right. I don't want to I don't wanna I don't I don't affirm that as a means of invalidating other religions. Right, you know, right. Um, other religions have their virtues, and, you know, obviously Judaism is very integrally connected, connected with Christianity. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't want to invalidate them. It's, it's not right. a matter of invalidating them. It's more a matter of, as you pointed out, this sort of confidence in God's grace. Yeah, yeah. That I th- God's that, grace wins in the end. I Oh, yes. God's grace wins in the end. We should title our whole thing that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right? exactly. And and I, I think how that happens, you know, it, 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 at the end... Uh, we don't, we, who's who's to say? It's yeah, not just for us, right. us to say, right. um, you know. And there's there's a whole bunch of, of theories about that. But the reality is, I think that when we look at God and who God is, and God's uh, showed showed God's self to be in Scripture, that we can see and we can we can see this this promise and this hope for humanity. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah, well, yeah. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.